0: You're listening to The Film Podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland.
1: And welcome to another episode of The Film Podcast. With an interesting question to throw up today, and that is, is there an age when you are too old to become a filmmaker? There will be people listening who got into their experimental filmmaking careers at the age of 12, 16 or 18 years old. And then went on to film school. And then there are others who go into a completely different career before finding filmmaking. So the question is, how old can you be when you say to yourself, I want to tell stories? I want to learn filmmaking. Because the hardest decision is probably not your age, but the guts and the determination to challenge yourself and to make that final step into the unknown. I'll say this about filmmaking. It's not an overnight thing where you wake up and say to yourself, I want to be a filmmaker. This has been burning away inside you for many years. And if you are older, maybe even decades, you've always found an excuse, which in many cases are valid and legitimate reasons, like you've just been married and you've bought a house, you have a baby on the way. Your partner will not support the idea that you have of wanting to make stories. That's not going to feed the baby and pay the rent or the mortgage. Instead, you're told to provide for the family and get a real job. Be responsible and please don't be responsible for making us homeless. But the idea and the passion of being a filmmaker still burns away inside you. Well, my guest is someone who did find filmmaking late in his career, and in particular found film directing. Mark Hensley, welcome to the film podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm happy to be here. And how much of that introduction can you personally relate to as someone who did get into filmmaking later in life?
0: Quite a bit, actually. Being a filmmaker actually never was on my radar, ever. I actually started in music. That was actually my goal in life. I wanted to do something in music. I played in bands. I decided I was going to go to recording school. I was living in Holland at the time, and that's kind of where I grew up, even though I'm an American. I moved to Holland when I was six, lived there for 17 years, and there were no recording schools in Holland at the time. And so I saved up money and moved to San Francisco. I went to a one-year program there, College of Recording Arts, then spent the next six months trying to get a job at the record plant in Sausalito, which I ended up getting. I got hired as an assistant. I found out that I really love post-production. I became a re-recording mixer. We moved to LA after 17 years in Canada because I wanted to further my career. My wife's a writer. She had written a short film and I had met a director. He directed the short. We were actually quite unhappy with the way it came out, but... Nonetheless, you know, we moved on. We didn't even actually finish the edit. It was so uninspiring. A year later, I had an idea for a short myself, and I figured, you know what? I can do as bad a job, I think. We basically went out, shot it in a day. It was called The Daycare. It actually made it into a bunch of festivals, and uh, unfortunately, that's where the bug caught me. As far as being a filmmaker, it's, it's, I, I realized it's something I really enjoy doing, and a year later... I bought my first camera at the age of 55 and just started making shorts. You know, I'd come up with an idea and I'd do it. I I just, I really believe that anybody who wants to be a filmmaker today can do it. You just have to train yourself and to train yourself, in my opinion, you really have to have some of your own equipment.
1: Well, I think because of your background as a re-recording mixer and working on a lot of quality shows like Sons of Anarchy and Genius, which chronicles the life of Albert Einstein, played by Jeffrey Rush, with the pilot being directed by Oscar-winning director Ron Howard, that there is this body of work that sets a high production value either conscious or subconsciously on you.
0: Absolutely. I, and I think being a re-recording mixer subconsciously has been an enormous help because every day I go to work because I work at a, one of the largest audio post facilities in LA, you know, I've always worked on higher level projects mostly. And so kind of subconsciously realizing and learning about everything whether there's editorial or acting or storyline. And I really feel I've, I've learned subconsciously all of these things about making something good so that when i go in to do my own projects you know i can look at something and go no this has got to change i've got to move this here i've got to switch this angle here but even on the shooting level i pay a lot of attention to lighting now it's because of looking at a big screen of in front of me every day when i'm mixing it's like you said really truly learning from the best And I think that that's just been a big advantage for myself. So even though I didn't start directing my first thing until I was 55, I really feel I've kind of been able to take a little bit of a shortcut to gradually making sure that my shorts were really good in a fairly short amount of time.
1: Well, I think that you've got an advantage without question over most filmmakers because of the experience that you have within working on sound, which has even led to you winning an Emmy from the television series Genius. So tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, we were brought on uh, the first season to mix the show Genius. Uh, We weren't sure how many seasons they would do. The first season was Einstein, uh, which we were also nominated for, but didn't win. Ron Howard directed the pilot which we mixed and it was actually pretty amazing working with him. It, you know, it's interesting working with really truly people that are so high up that that ladder of success because, you know, here's a director, he was going to come in for the playback, and of course, you know, we're all I mean, I'm nervous. I mean, you know, it's Ron Howard. So he comes in, we do our playback. He had a handful of notes, and that was it. Because he focused on what's important. He would always preface every note with, well, you know, I might be wrong, but you know, what do you think if we did this? And I would always just think to myself, dude, you can do whatever you want. You're Rod Howard, (laughs) you know, it's like, (laughs) you know, but he's very, very much inclusive in his project. He really is interested in the input of the people that he's working with as far as what's happening on screen. And so that was, that was a really, that was really interesting and, and really very, very cool. It was a great thing to do. And then season two, was picasso with antonio banderas and that's that's the one that we won the emmy for and the funny thing is i've had three nominations it was that year was the one where i said to my wife look we're up against so many great great other tv shows and we really were i said we're gonna go it's gonna be fun we'll have we're not gonna win and then when they announced us like literally everything just went blank it's i mean you want to talk about tunnel vision I, I don't even know how I made it up on the stage because I was absolutely not expecting to win at all. Yeah, it was, it was pretty exciting. And anybody says that awards don't matter, they're full of it. <laughs> you know, it was it was amazing. It truly was. And then afterwards, we ran into Antonio Banderas, actually, at the after party. What an incredibly, incredibly nice man. He was, he's like, why didn't you bring your Emmy? You should have brought it. And my okay. wife said, yeah, that's what I told him. I said, well, you know, I didn't want to show off. And he's like, no, man, that's amazing. It was great. You know, it's like, so yeah, it's, you know, it's been, it's been a fun time being in LA and being part of the industry here. And again, working at that level on shows, it really has just, I think, really educated me without knowing I was being educated.
1: And the point there for everyone looking at becoming a filmmaker I say that all of your life experiences up to that point of getting into your first film is actually worth something because it has helped form character of who you are. So even though you were not working in film prior, there are real life experiences that will help and assist you. And as a director, don't feel the need to chest beat Because at the end of the day, everybody knows who the director is. Play that all down and focus on being open and available to your cast and crew, which is vitally important if you want to get a really great result on any of the films that you work on.
0: Yeah, you know, it's been my experience that when you let your actors and everybody else know that their opinion is appreciated... I've had changes done to stuff I've done by the actors that just elevate it to another level. Now, not every suggestion they do is going to be a great one and it may not be used, but I haven't done a single project where an actor hasn't made a difference that made it better. Like This last short I just did called uh, You're Early, it's about a woman who comes home from class And her husband's tied up and being, you know, tortured by a guy who's broken and who wants to get into their safe. The script said, you know, it's an expensive house, it's a mansion, yada yada yada. Well, I didn't have access to a mansion. I have a nice house, but certainly not a mansion. My lead Sam said, Why don't we make him a musician? And I was like, That's a great idea. Because what I then did is I set out and dressed the room that he's in as a musician's writing There's I, I made some golden platinum records. I put them on the wall. I put instruments in there. And the thing with that is that you see that scene and you immediately know he's a musician and he's made a lot of records. So he's got a lot of money. So his backstory is right there. And then his girlfriend that comes home, that actress said, you know what? Then I'll, I'll, I'll mention something about this being the studio in the back of the house. Yeah, I mean, including the people that you work with, I feel the same way. It just, and like you said, you don't have to beat yourself on the chest that I'm the director and everybody else should do what I say. I'm actually quite the opposite. It's like, okay, like with that thing, we ran through the scene a couple of times as a rehearsal. I did some minor changes. I said, well, no, I need you to, this is where I need you to do this. But it wasn't like I micromanaged everything the actors do because why would I have hired them then? I think you need to pick your actors wisely that will bring the character to life without having to direct them every step of the way. That's how I look at it.
1: And now that you've discovered film directing, what are some of the surprises for you? I'm actually able to do it. (laughs) You know, I mean, well, I think the big surprise is, is that what
0: I'm realizing is, I don't want this to be taken the wrong way, but I come from a time where Especially a place where I always thought that you know being a director or a filmmaker, those are special people. What I've learned is that they're not they're just people that wanted to direct and went out and did it. I think the necessity for having to go to film school is becoming less and less. I mean, I understand that there are people that really need that structured thing. I think that you know this need of spending a hundred hundred and fifty thousand dollars on film school isn't really necessary anymore, and especially with equipment being so inexpensive now. My whole thing is, and I see this on Facebook a lot of times, people say, you know, should I buy a camera or rent? And some people will say, no, rent. I have the exact opposite philosophy. If you're going to be a filmmaker, buy your equipment. If you want to make a single film, yes, rent. But I think by having your own equipment, you can spend a lot more time experimenting and teaching yourself to be a better filmmaker if you have your own equipment.
1: And as a re-recording mixer, you take all of the audio elements and balance them to create a final surround soundtrack. And your main task in all of this is the mix dialogue and music. So I'm curious to know, Mark, with the ton of experience that you've got in this field, how have you gone about organizing your own sound in your own films?
0: I'm pretty non-snobbish when it comes to equipment because I know what can be done on the dub stage. So I don't have the most expensive sound recorder or the most expensive lavs or the most expensive boom mic. I use, for example, uh, $600, the Deity Connect. It's a stereo lav system. I have a Deity uh, boom mic and a Zoom F4 location sound recorder the thing is is as a re-recording mixer i get so much badly recorded dialogue recorded on the best equipment it's better to not necessarily buy the single most expensive piece of equipment but a variety of things that you're going to need because in this day and age on the sound side too i just don't think there's anything being sold that is absolute garbage i mean there's things that you wouldn't necessarily use on a on a full-on professional film set. But as far as indie filmmakers go, there's honestly no reason to spend $1,500 on a single Sennheiser boom mic, when for $1,500 you can buy yourself a complete sound package with four labs, a recorder, and a boom, that will do the job and do it well. My attitude is, at the end of the day, I am not making Transformers. I am not doing Titanic. What I'm going to get with the equipment I got, and what I have, is going to be more than good enough to make the kind of films that i'm making which are independent films and th- there's a level of snobbism that goes on even in that micro budget world where i'm just like fine blow your entire budget on one piece of gear but you still don't have lights you don't still have a full sound package you know you don't have all the things that you need to really make an interesting film.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, we see what is happening with other issues talked about on social media and people going down this whole rabbit hole. And it's really no different with filmmaking. People can be led astray by people making videos on all sorts of pieces of equipment and passing commentary on what you need to know about that equipment. And their advice, I would say, take with a grain of salt. Because most of these people, they're not filmmakers, they're film enthusiasts, and there's a big difference. If they were filmmakers, the information would be a lot different.
0: Ultimately, it's going to be about story first and then your actors. Then you want a a good camera because you still have to have all the ancillary equipment around that to really do good stuff. You know, you're going to need a new computer, a good computer to edit on that can handle the files. So shooting in six and eight K or higher for a low micro budget indie film, I think is, it's just kind of silly because most of the festivals you're going to see it at, I mean. Most theaters are still projecting in 2K, especially where they're doing small film festivals. The quality that you can get on a 4K, I, I, just, I see no reason to, to spend more because, again, it's about the story. Get some good sound because bad sound will get you kicked out of a festival more than anything else because people can deal with something that might be soft focus for an hour and a half, but they will not be subjected to an hour and a half of bad sound.
1: Yes, there's no excuse for poor sound these days. And talking of dialogue, don't record whispered dialogue in a noisy background location. It's just a nightmare scenario.
0: Exactly. It's almost become a a real bad habit that people pick up on on set where, you know, they're outside, it's a noisy environment, they're, you know, in the middle of traffic and they're whispering. And it's like, I mean, I've had to mix scenes where they're in a club and the actors are whispering. It's just like, who goes to a club and whispers? Like, nobody, you know? But they think it's artistic and it's, you know, emotional. It's not. It's annoying, you know? It's like, and, and you know what? That means that they're going to probably have to go back and ADR everything. Now you've just thrown all that emotion that you got on set out the window because now you're expecting an actor to come in And within 30 seconds, emotionally be back to where they were, where they were on set that day that took them a while to get into it. Because when you're doing ADR, you don't have time to sit there and spend hours getting a couple of lines. And you do have actors that can come in and just nail it. But mostly inexperienced actors, the sink's going to be off. Their emotion is not going to be there. The delivery is going to be wrong. no.
1: And that final mix for any sound person is pretty exciting. You get to mix the dialogue and the music and to make all of those adjustments in a decent size room where all of your experience comes to the fore, which is just so critical to the way that the project is going to be perceived and talked about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm one of those guys who's fortunate to absolutely love what he does. And I actually really love mixing the dialogue and the music. There's nothing more satisfying than, for example, going into a scene where they've done a bunch of ADR because they thought it was too noisy. And then I go through it. I'm able to clean everything up. And you know, when you play it back for the client and they're like, was that the ADR? I'm like, no, that was production. There's a level of satisfaction that comes from that kind of little pat on the back where it's like... I mean, we actually had it yesterday with Equalize. We had the whole episode. There was a lot of outside stuff uh, being filmed in New York, tons and tons of noise everywhere. And I was able to pretty much use nearly all of the production sound instead of having to go to ADR because my big thing is I will always try and, even if they shot ADR, I will always try and make production work because there's nine times out of 10, there's just a level of performance there that, that gets lost. And... I mean, some scenes you're like, uh, yeah, just ADR that line. It's it's just kind of like a throwaway line. But, you know, when you get into these scenes that are really emotional and really important, you know, you just lose something when you do ADR. And I will always, always work hard at, you know, making
1: production work. And it's a good point. And I do liken it a little bit in a similar way to a long take, whereby if you can make a scene work in a one a without going into coverage, it's a similar thing to someone leaning into ADR rather than capturing it on the day. Yeah,
0: no, absolutely, absolutely. And it's funny, too, because that's, that's where it's so important that people pick their location sound person well again it's it's not about the equipment they're using i remember a a few years ago a friend of mine was working on um, a super low budget indie film the location sound person was this really young girl she had just gotten into it but her booming and her lav placement was impeccable and she didn't have the most expensive gear but her dialogue was clean and it sounded really great that's the big problem is because gear is so inexpensive People just go out and buy gear, and now they're location sound recorders. they have no idea what they're doing. They haven't trained on anybody, so they don't really know how to boom stuff. They don't know how to ha- place their labs. I've worked on scenes where there's two guys in a room, and they've had to ADR the whole scene. And then I've worked on shows where actually it was Ambassador Executioner, show we were mixing, and it was shot in the UK. Actually, it was up in Ireland. On a stormy beach, like the wind, it's like hurricane gale winds. And all the production was completely usable. Not a line of ADR because the production sound guy knew what he was doing.
1: And in many ways, your job in sound is an invisible one. Like no one has ever left a cinema after watching a film and said to the person next to them, gee, the re-recording mixer did such a great job on that film. No, I know.
0: I mean, you know what? When they don't, that's because we did our job, you know? I mean, it's, you know, it's funny too, because I've had to, on numerous occasions, correct people online. They try and come off as an expert. They go big movies, they ADR everything. I'll be like, no, no. The reason those films sound so good is because the people that have not only recorded it, but also the mixers that have mixed it are really good at what they do. Because in fact, major motion pictures, the directors will prefer to not ever have to use ADR. The fact that you think it's all ADR is because it's well done. Because I've I've literally seen people go in who have, have no experience and think that they need to ADR the whole movie to get that Hollywood sound. It's like, no, give it to somebody who knows how to mix, and that's how you'll get that Hollywood sound. But I know as a dialogue mixer, there really is no excuse to have bad sounding dialogue. And I'm, I'm a big fan of trying to clean out as much as a production noise as I can without it affecting the dialogue, because that allows then the subtleties of all the other stuff to come through without having to push them too much. Like if I can get the dialogue nice and clean, then suddenly all the the backgrounds that get mixed in, or even even the the really delicate musical stuff can poke through without having to be rammed over your head because it's not being clobbered by production noise. You know, that's my, one of my big pet peeves It's like, if I can get all those subtle nuances to poke through without having to push them through much, then then that's kind of a win-win because it just creates overall a much nicer sound picture, basically.
1: And you mentioned earlier that you like editing your films. And what is it that makes sound people really interested in the editing process?
0: I actually hate sound editing, but I love picture editing. I think because picture editing is where you can really change the story. You know, a perfect example is, again, for myself, the very first short that I basically produced that the other guy directed is the way he shot it and we initially got the the temp edit, it was completely linear and it was... Very poorly done. And then after I had edited my own short, The Daycare, I sat down and I was messing around and I, I, I just found this one image, one shot. And I'm like, you know what? That's what I need to open it with. And I need to completely rearrange how the whole storyline unfolds. And it truly made a huge difference. And even when the, edit, even when the director saw it later, he, we were at a festival. It was the first festival we were in, it was here in LA. He was with us. Because up to that point, he had been pretty much not very happy with the fact that we didn't want to go with his edit and we had shelved it. So we're at this festival, it starts playing, and I hear him lean over to my wife and he goes, wow, this is actually really good.
1: So after you made your first short film and did all the editing on it, how much of a muscle memory was at play with knowledge on what you needed to change in the way that you shoot that would assist you with directing your next film?
0: A lot, actually. I learned so much from that first short that I directed. I really started focusing on just trying to really shoot what I knew I was going to need. So I I put a lot of forethought into how I was going to edit it and what shots I was going to need. And I think the advantage with that is you don't end up shooting a bunch of unnecessary stuff. And that's one of my big things. I don't want to just go in and start shooting, shooting. Okay, let's do the close-up, the medium close, this is medium close-up, this the wide angle. No, I literally, before I started going in to shoot these, these other shorts, I've gotten better at it too. I've, I've become more focused on only shooting the stuff I know I'm going to need. I know exactly which angles I need because I know for the story exactly how I'm going to tell it. So I don't have to sift through a whole bunch of stuff to try and get my edit to work. I know it's going to work because I've
1: thought about it in advance. So how many of these shorts have you made, and when is the feature coming?
0: At least four or five real shorts. I've done a couple of little music videos. And the funny thing is I started doing shorts because I was going to do a feature. And unfortunately, when we were supposed to start shooting the feature, COVID hit. And unfortunately, the momentum that I had going with the actors and stuff, that all fell apart. So I actually don't know what the feature will be that I'll be doing next things kind of happen when they happen. I'll just keep making
1: shorts until it happens. And that really is the delay mechanism for most short filmmakers. It's finding the money to make the feature.
0: Yes. And that's why for me, I think I need to hook up with somebody who's good at that because I'm not a salesperson. I think that that is probably the hardest part of filmmaking is the money side. And I think that any good director that gets anywhere needs a team and The biggest part of that team is a producer who knows where and how to
1: find the money. And when it does come to making a feature, a lot has to do with the whole craft of networking because that's what it is. There is a real technique about networking. And fortunately for you, your working environment does expose you to a different professional caliber of person that your typical indie filmmaker doesn't run across. When we
0: moved to LA first, you know, we didn't know anybody here. We started actually going to this thing called Tuesdays at 9, and actors would show up, writers would submit 10 pages of something they were working on, they would pick the actors, they'd do cold table reads, and it helped the actors get in front of people and get you know, known to people, and it helped the writers hear their words being said and figure out what was wrong with their script. The funny thing is, is doing that is what allowed me to connect with actors because a lot of people that go there are actually working actors. Generally speaking, these people don't get hired in big TV shows if they're shitty actors.
1: You know, I'm always a little bit jealous of the cinematographer for that very reason. They get to <laughs> work with so many directors and producers and they come onto a project when the film is green-lit. They don't have to endure that struggle of financing up a film. They come in with a lot more of a, a freshness than a producer and a director has who have been to hell and back to get the money. Yeah, maybe we should just all be cinematographers. Uh,
0: right. It's... Man, I tell you, man, that's cinematography is just such an art. You know, I'm I'm just always baffled, admire cine- really good cinematographers so much, the things that they can do and th- they can truly make or break a project. It's truly an art form. The last short, I actually had to do literally everything myself. Like we're talking, you know, set design, makeup, cinematography, lighting, everything.
1: That's not a bad thing, though.
0: No, it's not. I actually think it's important that if you're going to be a filmmaker, you really should try and learn all the aspects because yes, it's great to have people who are really good at that one thing. And I would love to just always have access to a cinematographer. But by knowing all of those jobs, it allows you to still make a film when you don't have access to those people. And that's kind of what this last short that I just finished was about. It's like I had this idea. I wanted to do it. I got the script. I just decided to shoot it because... I didn't have to organize a bunch of people, even though it's a lot of work, just doing it. And then there's other things where it's just a lot more complicated. And like with this one I'm working on now, I really, really am trying to work around the schedule of the DP as much as I can to have her be there. So I can actually focus on directing as opposed to doing the camera work as well.
1: Well, you've started a little bit late in terms of becoming a filmmaker. So what would you say to someone listening to the podcast who perhaps is a little bit older, who might just be thinking, I could do that. I can tell stories.
0: Yeah. I mean, regardless of your age, if you want to make films, just go out, buy a camera and start making films and hook up with local filmmakers. The first films you make are going to be crap, like mine were. Every movie you make, you're going to learn something. And eventually, within a very probably short period of time, after doing enough of them, you'll be making some good movies. Yeah, that's my advice. Just just do it.
1: Well, thank you, Mark, for sharing your transition from sound guy to film director. I know that you found this late in life, but it sounds like you're enjoying what you're doing. And I look forward to seeing your next film. And thanks so much for joining us on the film podcast.
0: You're welcome. It was a lot of fun. You've been listening to The Film Podcast with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.